Welcome to Interviews with Innocence, a podcast about children, spirituality, and consciousness. I am your host, Marla Hughes. I believe that our very young children are our greatest teachers. After all, they are the masters of living in the present moment, bubbling with unconditional love, enjoying the messiness of life, and curious about the universe in all its dimensions. Each week, I will be interviewing authors, philosophers, spiritual teachers, doctors, and many more about the wisdom children bring into this world and how we can transform our lives with this knowledge. I am thrilled to have Dr. Melvin Morse on our show today. His book, Closer to the Light, was one of the first books I read when I dove into this beautiful field, and, and it really changed my life. Dr. Melvin Morse trained at Johns Hopkins University. He is an acclaimed pediatrician, voted as one of America's best doctors, and he is an author on books about near-death experiences and spirituality. He was an associate professor of pediatrics at the University of Washington for 20 years. His international bestseller, Closer to the Light, describes children who have had near-death experiences. This was based on his research at Seattle Children's Hospital under the supervision of the University of Washington's Human Subject Review Board. His second book, Transformed by the Light, documented the long-term positive transformations of children who had near-death experiences. And his third book, Parting Visions, detailed the shared dying experience of children and adults. His most recent book, Where God Lives, is an award-winning book discussing spiritual neuroscience and exactly how our brains are connected to the universe. His books were co-authored by Paul Perry, a science writer and a documentary filmmaker. Dr. Morse has published numerous peer-reviewed articles and won awards on his research on spiritual healing, remote viewing, and other aspects of human consciousness. He currently lives in Asheville, North Carolina, with his wife and 13-year-old daughter. Dr. Morris is one of the leading researchers and experts in the field of children's near-death experiences and spirituality. He himself was a skeptic or non-believer before a little girl in Idaho drowned one night, and Dr. Morris just happened to be at the hospital that evening when she was airlifted in and pronounced clinically dead. This little girl changed Dr. Morris's life in many different ways, as have many of the children he has personally resuscitated and then interviewed over the years. This is an interview you do not want to miss. He shares leading research on how deeply science and spirituality are linked, how one cannot be without the other. I have found this research to be some of the most profound I have ever heard. Dr. Morris, I am truly honored to have the opportunity to talk with you today and share this important information, which I will simply call Lessons of Love. That's a great title, because that's that's (laughs) what I've learned from 20 years of studying children's near-death experiences. I've learned that life is about lessons of love, and so that's a perfect title for this. Great. Well, I, I'm I'm thrilled uh, to be here as well, Marla. I, I I really appreciate the opportunity to share this information because this is really, to me, sacred information. Yes. And I, you know, I spent most of my career in critical care medicine, and 
many of the patients I interviewed were children that I resuscitated myself. So I have the, the I guess, the good fortune or uh, the responsibility. You know, I don't have to rely on secondhand accounts or I have to wonder whether these children were really near death or, you know, the concerns of whether, you know, somebody's medical records don't seem to match what they say really happened to them. These are children that I actually resuscitated myself. And, you know, when you go through an experience, uh, as I have, I worked at Seattle Children's Hospital, and we resuscitated a young man in the lobby, in the admissions lobby. He suddenly had a cardiac arrest while his parents were getting him admitted. And we resuscitated him in that very room. And he opened his eyes after he was resuscitated and dramatically looked at me and said, that was weird. You guys just sucked me back into my body. <laughs> wow. You know, so, you know, that's the kind of thing that, that when I experience it directly, it, it has such a profound impact. Right. And yet I understand that after the story is told and then retold and retold, you know, skeptics are, are people who want to believe, but it, it's harder for them. And so that's why I really appreciate the opportunity to share with you directly. Absolutely. Well, you have so many amazing stories and your artwork is just amazing too, that you'll be sharing that the children actually drew about their experiences. So let's start, let's start at the beginning, just a little bit about where you received your, your medical training. And then when this all started in Idaho, can you tell us a little bit about that? I have a Jewish background and sort of a, a what you might call a secular Jew. <laughs> you know, right. you know, my parents, you know, you know, would sort of have this vague idea that there's a God, but uh, really, you know, more of a, just a cultural Judaism, as, as many Jews here in America have. H- Happy Rosh Hashanah, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> One day late. <laughs> the holidays mean a lot more to me now <laughs> after doing my research. Uh, uh, I have a deeper spiritual understanding of what they mean. But at the time, I, you know, I, I went to Johns Hopkins, trained there, a very rigorous medical training. We, we were sort of suspicious of family practice doctors. <laughs> right. For us, in the, the training that I received. I then became a pediatrician. I trained at the Seattle Children's Hospital and did my fellowship uh, primarily in hematology and oncology, studying the effects of uh, various uh, anti-cancer drugs on childhood leukemia. And uh, I happened to work mostly moonlighting for an outfit called Airlift Northwest. And uh, that started my career in critical care medicine. But it was really early on, while I was still a resident, that I happened to be in Pocatello, Idaho. I was working out there in a community clinic and a young girl came in who had been underwater, who had drowned in a community swimming pool and was documented as being underwater for 45 minutes. Wow. It was cold water. So we have sort of a saying in critical care medicine, you're, you're not dead until you're warm and dead. But she uh, was uh, profoundly comatose when she came in. So much so that uh, I invited her parents uh, to have a prayer circle around her uh, body and, you know, and really uh, expected uh, that she would not survive. 
she was then transported to um, Primary Children's Hospital in Salt Lake City, where she did make a full recovery. And it's interesting uh, that the nurses there report that her very first words when she woke up were, where are Mark and Andy? And it turned out that those were some of her companions in the place that uh, she thought was heaven. Interesting. Uh, I became involved in uh, the second part of her story when she returned to Pocatello, Idaho, and then I saw her in follow-up. And I uh, sort of, you know, just looked at her and I said, well, you don't remember me, Crystal, because, you know, she was, you know, clinically dead when I right. But, you know, I sure remember you because of this remarkable recovery. She looks at her mom and she says, oh, no, I remember him. He's the one that put a tube in my nose. Oh, my goodness. Wow. And she described her entire resuscitation. She described us. Uh, she said, I saw you put me in a machine that looked like a donut, which was her description of a CAT scanner. She recalled uh, incidental conversations that I had with the nurses. She uh, heard me saying to the doctors at Seattle Children's Hospital, you know, this patient, what can I possibly do next? You know, I don't, I don't have any more uh, tools in my uh, toolbox to help this patient. And then she said to me that uh, she went to a place that she thought was heaven. And I, well, I sort of giggled, you know, and I was like, right. what? And she reaches over and she pats me on the hand and says, you'll see, Dr. Morris, heaven is fun. Wow. And furthermore, uh, she then went on to tell me that the reason she had returned to this life was because her mother was pregnant uh, with a boy and uh, Crystal said that the unborn child uh, had a heart defect and that she had to come back to help her mother. And all of that had not been diagnosed as yet. Uh, as the months went by, it turned out, uh, you know, the ultrasound examination of the mother showed that, in fact, she was pregnant with a boy and the boy did have a heart defect. Uh, so, you know, Crystal uh, was absolutely right. Wow. And, and her eyes were taped, right? When she oh, was her, yeah. resuscitating you know, her. So that was say that. They say, well, gosh, you know, maybe she wasn't really comatose, et cetera. Right. Resuscitate patients, we tape their eyes closed because, you know, obviously we don't want things to fall in, you know, or grit or whatever. Otherwise, their eyes would just be, uh, you know, open and not blinking. So, you know, there would be no way that she would have known. Yeah. But it was more the way she talked. And that's why I really appreciate this opportunity, Marla, uh, to, because when you hear this told for the first time, these children say it with a sense of awe and reverence that, you know, then when they've told the story 10 times or 20 times or 30 times, you know, it doesn't come across. Right. And she looked at me and she said, I wasn't dead. I wasn't dead at all. Some part of me was still alive. And I just, wow, you know, I mean, and this totally shocked me because right. I, you know, I was, I think, like most medical scientists, I, you know, when you're dead, you're dead. Uh, right. You know. And you were so young in your residency. <laughs> right. And wow. so uh, this started me on a research uh, career because I wanted to know, you know, uh, I think the questions that, that most of us, uh, you know, the people that grieving parents, well, particularly grieving parents, want to know. Right. You know, can we trust these experiences? Are these just hallucinations at the point of death? 
Are they real experiences? Are they caused by the various medications that patients are given? You know, we give patients lots of medications as part of uh, resuscitation, including narcotics and anesthetic agents and such as that. And I wanted to look at all of that. And it's astonishing, and I think not well understood, that science actually supports the spirituality of the near-death experience. Yes, can, I've, I've read that you've, you've written about that. Can you tell us a little bit about that? About them? Sure. This is one of my questions that I was going to ask later, but I'd love to, that one cannot really exist without the other. Absolutely. That for, you know, for so long, we have thought that science is against spirituality. Right. That science debunks spirituality and such as that. And our research was published in the American Medical Association's pediatric journals. We've also published in The Lancet, which is arguably the world's most prestigious uh, medical journal. Our research was an entire issue of current problems in pediatrics uh, devoted itself to our research at Seattle Children's Hospital. Wow. We really systematically showed that these experiences are not caused by medications. They're not caused, you know, they're not fear death experiences from being in a scary intensive care unit, but they actually are part of the dying process. Mm. And I'll, I'll just quickly overview our study because... Yes, please. Because I remember reading that first you thought you were just interested in the memory part of it. You didn't yeah. even think because you were, you were such a, you know, you were a skeptic. Like you said, you didn't really believe anything. So it was the memory part of it that, that first intrigued well, you. But that's, We wondered how could a clinically dead patient remember anything? Right. Why would they be having any experiences at all? And tell you what was going on right inside the room, all the very specific things. That they're uh, leaving their their body. So, you know, at this time, uh, Raymond Moody's work had come out, Mm -hmm. and Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's work had come out. And it's funny, because I had seen Elizabeth Kubler-Ross on TV, and uh, my research team, which was you know, the Department of Neurology at Seattle Children's Hospital and the intensive care unit, we sort of all just chuckled and said, well, we'll show them, you know, that that actually medications cause these experiences. That's what we had thought. That's how your research started. We're going to prove them wrong, I heard you say, about Dr. Moody. Yes. You You know, luckily, we worked by the scientific method, which so we were willing to accept the results that we got. even though they were counterintuitive to us and even though we didn't expect them. And here's what we did. Rather than letting people come to us with stories or, you know, people that, you know, for whatever reason, maybe, you know, they they want to be on television or they, they, you know, or it makes them feel better uh, that, you know, that they survived death and saw. Instead, systematically interviewed all survivors of cardiac arrest at Seattle Children's Hospital over about a 15-year period of time. And we carefully compared them to identically matched children of the same age, the same sex, who were treated with same medications, had the same lack of oxygen in their brain, but weren't near death. Right. We decided in advance, you know, who we considered to be at the point of death and who we considered to simply be really, really sick, but given our medical knowledge uh, would recover. And we found to our astonishment 
that 24 of 26 children who survived near death reported this experience. Most of them hadn't told anybody before. So these are not, you know, far from, uh, you know, our first impressions are these are publicity seekers, these are people that want attention, etc. Interestingly enough, most of these children uh, hadn't even told their parents about their experiences before we interviewed them. I asked one little girl, I said to her, well, why didn't you tell anybody about this? And she said, I didn't think you were supposed to be able to see and talk to God. Uh, wow. You know, meaning, you know, the God is something that we, you know, worship in church, but, you know, right. talk to God, you know, even at her age, she knew that our cultural experiences that people like that are crazy. Mm. And, and I'm going to share with you, though, uh, one child uh, who had no memory of being clinically dead, because I think it's, it's a very uh, illustrative story. This is uh, one of the two that supposedly didn't have an experience. Yeah. Is that well, correct? Yeah. This, this is, yeah, this, this, this young lady nearly drowned in Lake Washington. She was fishing with her dad and she fell and was about 20 feet underwater. And she was resuscitated, part of our study. And she didn't remember anything about being nearly drowning and being resuscitated. So she would be what we, you know, so she's, you know, not a, you know, a negative uh, result. Right. Listen to her dad's experience. He said that, of course, he was panicked when his daughter fell out of the boat. And he and a, a friend of his, they free dove in Lake Washington down about 20 feet to try to find her body. And it was just, it was totally dark. They couldn't see anything. <sighs> the debris, the water was murky. And suddenly they said that they saw a bright light at the bottom of Lake Washington and they swam towards it and it was her and her body was lit up with a bright light. And that was what allowed them to find her underwater and bring her to the surface. And uh, ultimately she was resuscitated. Wow. And that brings forth all that. A study who didn't, you know, who were sort of negative for remembering near death experiences had something extraordinary happen to them. Right. This father was so astonished and, you know, really freaked out by this experience that he and his friend, they rented scuba gear. gear, And the next day they went and they sat at the bottom of Lake Washington and just sat there because they wanted to see whether maybe it was some stray ray of light or maybe it was some trick, you know, or something. And they said, absolutely not. It was pitch black for the 45 minutes that they had was in their air tanks that allowed them to be down there. Wow. You know, so something extraordinary happens at the point of death is what we learned from uh, studying the near-death experiences of children. And we published this in the scientific literature. And uh, our studies were then followed up by similar studies in adults. And, uh, you know, I think that the scientific community, if they're aware of the research, agrees now that these experiences are in fact the dying experience. We will all have these experiences when we die. Wow. Well, I know, I know you say you've said, you know, so let's see what science has to say about, about love and eternity through stories told by the young children who also did not have any previous knowledge of what it was like to die, any preconceived, you know, or conditioned beliefs or thoughts 
and that's what makes this this just so powerful. So can you can you share some more some of some more of the stories with us? Oh sure, <laughs> well, I, I know you have a lot of them. <laughs> well, I have several, so many favorite stories, but my favorite story of of a, a, a young girl. She had infectious mononucleosis and had severe liver failure. And she presented uh, to my office. You know, it was comatose. Her parents brought her to the office. You know, instead of taking her to the emergency room, and we of course immediately rushed her to the emergency room and resuscitated her. So again, Marla, by and large, these are patients that I personally know were near death. Right. And personally, was part of their resuscitation, and and she had you know no pre-existing beliefs about what happens when you die. She's eight years old. Her parents don't really talk to her about that kind of thing. They weren't a particularly religious family. And uh, so I interviewed her afterwards and I asked her what happened. And she said, well, when you were asking the nurses for that crash cart thing, my grandma was sitting there. She was just sitting there right next to me. And of course, <laughs> you know, her grandmother wasn't. passed, her, yes. Her grandmother had passed. So she drew a picture of her grandmother. You can see there's her, her grandmother just wow. sitting in a chair. <laughs> and, and, and little Jessie says to me, I was just so shocked to see her. <laughs> and, oh my. You know, and, and, and then she clenches her fists and she says, and then I was back. And, and so I said to her, what do, you, what do you mean you were back? And she goes, that's what I've been trying to figure out. <laughs> Oh, wow. You know, and again, that, that's, I just thank you for having me on your show, Marla, because oh, to absolutely. share these stories, because then, you know, after she's told the story again and again and again, then it becomes more like your traditional story. Right. you this sort of disjointed, fragmentary, you know. That's what I'm trying to figure out. <laughs> yes, yes. Just that purity and that innocence of them. Or I, I'll give you a, another quick example. Great. Right. It doesn't have to be quick. <laughs> <laughs> Hearing the stories for the first time is so unique. And an, another young man named Chris uh, Eggleston, his family was coming home from a ski vacation. And uh, then the Cascade Mountains and their car flipped over a guardrail and plunged into a icy river that was below. Oh my goodness. And he was trapped underwater for a prolonged period of time until he was resuscitated. And after his resuscitation, he says to me, well, I was in a huge noodle and the noodle took me to a place that well, first it was the animal heaven, and then there was a bee, and the bee took me to the human heaven. And then he looks at me, he's completely puzzled, and he goes, no, it couldn't have been a noodle, because noodles don't have rainbows in them. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, you know, and so then, then, you know, then, you know, that's the last time he ever described it as a noodle. Right. You know, then, you know, then it was always a tunnel. I was in a tunnel with a rainbow, et cetera. But hearing it that first time gives it such a sense of authenticity mm -hmm. that you know this is a real experience that happened to him, to all of these children, that yeah. they're struggling to understand that they don't have words for. 
And I think that that's, uh, you know, one of the most confusing and yet powerful aspects of these experiences, you know, that something happened. And yet if we take it too seriously, you know, a lot of times people do get sort of hung up into, well, tell me what heaven looked like, or, or, or there are people are perplexed. Well, I think this applies to, uh, you know, our adult understanding of religion. You know, well, well, how come, you know, these people believe in Muhammad and these people believe in Jesus and these people believe in Buddha? Isn't somebody right and isn't someone wrong? And yet our study of children, I I think, helps to shed some light on that. Another young man that we resuscitated, uh, he was digging a a big hole uh, in the beach you know, just sort of mindlessly digging as big a hole as he possibly could. Right. Balls collapsed and suffocated him. And uh, he was resuscitated, a very complex, difficult resuscitation. And he perceived himself as being out of his body through his uh, initial resuscitation, you know, at the beach, the ambulance ride to the hospital, etc. The whole time he sort of saw himself as being out of his body and tethered to it just sort of traveling along with it. And so I asked him, I said, so, you know, what were you, what was going on with you while all this was happening? And he said to me, a wizard came to me. And the wizard said, struggle and you shall live. I said, a wizard? <laughs> I mean, you know, and I was starting in my career, you know, so, you know, I mean, yes. uh, you know, a grandmother, a wizard, God looks like uh, a Santa Claus. Um, you know, I said, a wizard? And then he looked at me and he said, no, it was God. And I said, how did you know it was God? And he said, from the knowledge in his voice. Wow. And, you know, so that's, when you look at the children's near-death experiences, you see that this experience comes to them in a way that they can understand. Right. This right. boy was very much involved in Dungeons and Dragons and, you know, Harry Potter. And right. All and so, you know, his, when this experience comes to him that is so, it's so foreign to everything that, that we know, and yet it's so real. Mm-hmm. It's it's not like uh, you know I you know it, it's not like in the movies where you know the sort of you know a vague ghostly shape or you know or or, or an angel that's floating in the air. They, these children have they they say, well, I was talking to the wizard just like I'm here talking to you now. Wow, you know, it's a vividly real experience, and yet it's in a form that takes them a while to start to understand. And how does it affect them after, you know, they've had these experiences? I know you've done, we don't need to spend a lot of time, but I know you've done a lot of research on that also. So we wanted to see what happened to these children. And we interviewed them 10, 15 years later when they were young adults. We also interviewed several hundred adults who had near-death experiences as children. And what we learned was so inspiring. We learned that there's, that the secrets of life are something that we all know. We, they, you know, we didn't learn some amazing, uh, 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 you know, 
revelations uh, from these uh, children who survive near death. We learn that it's nice to be nice, that you should be kind to people, that the important lessons of life have to do with relationships and have to do with learning to love. And this is what the children told us again and again and again. Ah, that's so beautiful. Uh, just a couple of examples. Yes, please. So one, one young man was a diabetic, and he had nearly died from a diabetic coma when he was a young teenager. And I interviewed him again when he was uh, in his mid-20s. Uh, he had told me at the time that uh, as part of his near-death experience, he'd been told, go back, Bobby, you have a job to do. <laughs> you know, so, so, you know, again, I was, you know, early in my career and I was like, you know, oh, great, you know, it's, you know, this is, you know, he's grandiose. You know, he thinks there's going to be, you know, a cure for cancer. Right, right. Save the world. And so I said to him, I said, okay, you know, all right. So what was the job that you were sent back? And, you know, and I'll be honest with you, you know, I'm just learning about this kind of information myself. And I did come at it from a skeptical standpoint. And he very kindly and very patiently looked at me and he said, you know, no, Dr. Morse, it's not some, you know, amazing special thing. I already told you what my job was. I run a little construction company. I hire five of my high school friends and uh, we do additions and put on decks and such as that. (laughs) He said, that's the job that I came back to do. And then he goes, those numb nuts I work with, they wouldn't be able to get a job if it wasn't for me. (laughs) But but that's so important. So that teaches us that, you know, that our ordinary lives are filled with purpose and meaning. Right. That does seem to be the message again and again. One woman, this is actually a good friend of mine, she uh, had a near-death experience as an adult. And she's a a high-level executive for Big Farm, very much responsible for some of the new drugs that have come out. Really, you know, a lifetime of accomplishments. And she had uh, her life review. (laughs) And her life review primarily focused on when she was at summer camp as a teenager, and she was kind to a disabled child who was also at that summer camp. I love that. That, that, you know, so that, that the children had been teasing. Right. Can yeah. you explain to the listeners what a life review is? Because it may be the first time some have heard, heard that term. So part of the near-death experience, for adults particularly, is that they have a life review. Is that the important events of their life are sort of Sometimes they actually experience it as if, you know, being in a play, going from uh, scene to scene to scene, other times just viewing it as if it was a movie, but always being filled with a sense of unconditional love and non-judgment. Right. So even the things that we're ashamed of, even the things that, We've done wrong. Even uh, there's a one very well uh, known example of a near death experience of a Nazi prison guard, and he reports the exact same thing. 
that his experience, he was not judged, but he was loved. The judgment comes when you judge yourself. Yes. And, and, and that unconditional love then allows you to see your own life and actually to be ashamed. And, you know, so because all of the defensiveness and, and your, you know, your instincts to deny and to, you know, et cetera, uh, th those are all gone. Right. And the uh, adults that have near-death experience and have this life review, they say that they learn that this life is a school, that we're actually here to learn lessons of love. Mm -hmm. I think this is a great place to wrap up this episode. I'm thrilled to announce that Dr. Morse is going to come back next week and share more valuable research and beautiful stories. I'm so excited about that. If you would like to reach Dr. Morse, you can email him at melvin.morse, M-O-R-S-E, at yahoo.com, or you can find him on two websites. The first one is melvinmorsemd.com, and the second is spiritualscientific.com. He will also be sharing some very interesting blog posts on my website, so please go and visit and check those out at interviewswithinnocence.com. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening in today. If you want to learn more about the show, you can find us at interviewswithinnocence.com and on Facebook or Instagram at interviewswithinnocence. Please write me a message. Tell me what you liked and let me know what else you would like to hear. I would love to hear from you. And if you liked what you heard, please leave us an iTunes rating and review. It helps other listeners find the show. Thank you. Thank you.